Most bands write down a set list to keep track of the order in which they're performing their songs, and you'd be surprised how much mayhem poor set list organization can cause. A smart band leader will collect set lists after the show just to make sure no one accidentally keeps one and mixes it in down the road. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad you all joined me for another year-long set list about singing, songwriting, set list maintenance, music production, and above all else, listening. Thank you so much to everyone who chipped in to help support the creation of Strong Songs in year three. It's been an amazing year. I've been able to dedicate so much time and care to this show. Thanks to all of your support. If you'd like to support the creation of Strong Songs, you can become a patron, make a one-time donation, buy some merch, or just tell a friend about the show. On this episode, it's the end of year three, so it's time for a look back at the many, many hours of Strong Songs since January, from Ziggy and Heathcliff to Bellamy and Byrne. They say time flies when you're having fun, and this past year's been stratospheric, so throw some garbage in the flux, hit 88, and forget those roads. Another year of strong songs is in the bag, and I kind of can't believe it. I can't believe how long I've been making this show, and every time I stop to look back, I can't believe how far back the road behind me stretches. This has been a real journey. Year three of strong songs has been a real journey. It's been a lot of fun from debuting the new theme music at the beginning of the year till right now, when you're sitting here with me listening to a retrospective about the year that was. I'm not going to lie, 2021 was not a super easy year uh, in a lot of ways that didn't relate to strong songs. I'm sure a bunch of you out there can kind of relate to that. It was supposed to be this great hopeful year. There were definitely moments of hope. There were there were bright spots, but it was also a very challenging year in a lot of ways. But let me tell you, making strong songs was a bright spot consistently throughout the year for me. I have loved making this show just like I've always loved making this show. Um, Thanks again to everybody who supports me making it. I'm really just having a great time making this. And this has been a a great year. I feel like I've learned so much about how to make the show. I've gotten so much better at making it. And I've learned a ton of music. I mean, every time I make an episode of this show, I learn so much. And I come away with a new appreciation of yet another artist that that I knew about but didn't fully understand until I really got inside their music the way that this show allows me to do. So it's been really cool to go back to the start, and it's going to be fun to take you all on a tour through Strong Songs Year 3, a whirlwind tour through the year that was. This isn't going to be a clip show. This will be original stuff, just my favorite thing or two about each of the songs that I talked about. So there's a lot of ground to cover, and we got to get started. First up, Space Oddity and Starman by the great David Bowie. Year 3 kicked off with a David Bowie doubleheader focusing on Space Oddity from his 1969 self-titled record and Starman from his 1972 classic Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. These doubleheaders are always difficult in a variety of different ways, but I was happy with what I managed to learn about both of these tunes from the use of the handheld stylophone on Space Oddity, which creates that weird little lowing synth sound during the verses. (laughs) 
to Nick Ronson's killer outro guitar solo on Starman that I can now finally recreate tonally a lot more fully now that I finally have a Les Paul. There's just something in that Les Paul upper register that has that certain magic sound. But the most striking thing about these two recordings is the contrast between them. There were so many breakthroughs in recording between 1969 and 1972, and in particular a standard stereo mix became much more established by 72, since in 69 a lot of things were still being mixed in mono. So the stereo mix of Starman just sounds much more modern, the drums and the bass are centered, the whole thing sounds like it could have come out today. Then the loud sound it seemed to while the stereo mix of Space Out at Each sounds more like a 60s record, the drums and the bass are off to the side, the whole thing is just a little bit more spread out. And then of course there's the narrative power of both songs with those shifting perspectives in Space Oddity as Major Tom talks to ground control and then floats away into space only to, at least in my head canon, return three years later transformed into the great Ziggy Stardust. What a great way to kick off the year. Next up, Hide and Seek by Imogen He. I never know when to cut her off. I kind of just want to let the whole song play every time it starts. It's hard to start talking over it. Anyways, this song was another challenge and a really cool one. It's a very simple song. There's not a whole lot going on. There's just Imogen Heap singing into her digital harmonizer, but that actually made for a really interesting episode because I could get a little more granular, both on the chord progression that she was using, those famous four chords, one to five to six to four, but also the way she was using digital harmonizing and also just sort of the sounds of her breath and this sort of human element uh, combined with the digital element to create a kind of intimacy that really makes this song special. My favorite thing about making this episode, of course, was learning how to use a vocoder, which I did, I think, to great effect in the episode itself. It turns out you can really enhance the power of what you're saying simply by adding lush chords underneath whatever it is. I got a better software vocoder a few months after making the episode, and I've been having a lot of fun experimenting with it. It can do some truly beautiful things. And before you know it, even a simple podcast year in review can turn into an emotional experience. Mm, what you say? Mm, that you only meant well, well, cause you did. Mm, what you say? Mm, that it's all for the best, cause it is. What you say? Next tune Babylon Sisters by Steely Dan. Donald Fagan and Walter Becker's 1980 exercise in pristine studio funk was actually a great opportunity to talk about one of their greatest sidemen. Babylon Sisters works because of the groove, and this episode let me spotlight the man responsible for that, the great drummer Bernard Purdy. 
Specifically, it was a lot of fun to talk about his signature Purdy shuffle. Not every drummer gets a groove named after him, but Bernard Purdy definitely deserves it. I love how this groove works. It was really fun to learn about it and put it together. In particular, the way the hi-hat pattern works, it's kind of the splang-a-lang of a swing ride cymbal pattern. Splang, splang-a-lang, splang-a-lang, minus the splang, so you just get a-lang, 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 a-lang. Put that down on the hi-hat, and that's the beating heart of the Purdy shuffle. That was super cool to learn. I've learned to play this groove on my own, and I've yet to get tired of playing it. Next up, Kate Bush's Wuthering, Wuthering, Wuthering Highs. Oh man, this song! It was super fun to learn this song as a song. It's a beautiful song and a beautiful arrangement. It was cool to appreciate just how incredible it is that a 19-year-old could write a song this intricate and unusual, as well as the fact that only a 19-year-old could write a piece of literary fan fiction that would, for a lot of people, have a greater impact than the novel on which it's based. It was also cool, though, to learn more about Wuthering Heights, the phenomenon, because after posting this episode, so many of you wrote in to share stories and videos from the most Wuthering Heights day ever, which is a total thing. It's this annual celebration. There are various uh, ones that crop up all around the world. Everybody dresses up in that signature red dress and goes and dances around together to this song. It's really cool, and I've just never quite encountered a song-specific subculture before. Certainly not anything like this song has. And I know that Bush can be divisive in some ways. I did hear from some people who are like, man, I still just can't get into Kate Bush. But I'm really glad that I got into her this year. I'm glad that I learned all about her music and listened to basically everything throughout her incredible career. I encourage you all to do the same. And it was just really fun to get to make this episode and to get to hear from so many of you all who love Kate Bush's music. So for me, like one of the things about music that I really love and my favorite music, there's always a mystery, you know, there's always some something to try to discover or like a corner to turn or some sort of fog to be lifted or, or something like there needs to be something mysterious about it. So finding the thing that the person goes like, wait, what was that? I didn't just do solo episodes and Q&As in year three. I ran several interview episodes as well. I was proud of each of them. That was the first one from the year with the great jazz pianist Carmen Staff. She's such a fun person to talk to, just brilliantly smart about music. We had a great time getting abstract about the nature of music and how the musical mind works. We also just talked about her work and her creative process. And she gave me a great book recommendation. So definitely go check that one out. Next up, Cameo Lover by Kimbra. This one, this was another really fun one. It's got pop forward grooves, it's got reverse cymbal swells, and above all else, it's got Kimbra's nonstop verve and extremely compelling singing style. I recently heard her on a new Corey Wong record as a guest vocalist, and man, she really is just one of my favorite singers around. I kept so defined 
thing about this episode was isolating that iconic Ronette's Be My Baby groove, which has turned up so many places, and I've actually talked about it in the past on this show, but it was cool to have it appear in the middle of a song that I was actually talking about. Next up, Oliver Nelson's Stolen Moments. Jazz episodes like this one are always fun for me because I know a lot of jazz tunes, but I don't know them that deeply. Like, I could probably get on the bandstand and play them. That's kind of how you learn a lot of jazz tunes, but I could never really just sit down and play all the voicings and really master the harmony. One of the benefits of being a saxophone player and not a piano player, but also one of the weaknesses of being a saxophone player and not a piano player. So it was cool to sit down with a tune like Stolen Moments, which I've heard so many times. I could sing along with all of the solos, but I never transcribed them. I never learned the, you know, harmony of the arrangement. And that was actually a really fun part of making this episode, was recreating the arrangement, Oliver Nelson arrangement on the actual melody itself. Beyond that, as always, my favorite part of this episode was breaking down a single lick by the great trumpeter Freddie Hubbard, and then hopefully helping some of you out there hear all of the intricate parts of that line a little bit better. It's such a ridiculously good lick. Learning that on piano and sort of spelling it out really gave me an appreciation for that. And then really going slow on the piano and just moving through each of those little intricately woven half-step enclosures that he does. Man, Freddie Hubbard was great. a reason why like you tend to get into it as a teenager if you're going to get into it at all uh because i think like there is something inherently melodramatic about musicals as a form you know whenever the emotion is too big for dialogue you sing and when the emotion is too big for singing you dance and that's sort of like you are just open to it when you're younger especially if you're like in this sort of like irony saturated sphere like the 90s were or today 
My chat with the great Lindsay Ellis was a blast. Of course it was. She's always a lot of fun to talk with. In between writing novels and making hugely successful YouTube video essays, she's also a huge musical theater nerd. Um, in particular, I really like talking with her about Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course, because she's a big fan. It was actually thanks to this conversation that I was inspired to go see the 50th anniversary tour of Jesus Christ Superstar when it came to Portland, and it did not disappoint. It was a wild staging of that musical. Definitely worth catching if it comes to your area. And hey, maybe that's a musical I could talk about at some point down the road. Next up, Newborn and Microcuts by Muse. Settle down. This was a great time. Two songs from one of my favorite albums by one of my favorite bands. I learned a lot about how these tunes were written. I had a lot of fun recreating them. But the most noteworthy thing that happened was actually right after the episode went up. So as it turned out, it was the 20th anniversary of Origin of Symmetry this year. That's the name of the album that both of these songs are from. This kind of thing just happens with strong songs sometimes. I never really plan stuff around anniversaries like that. But every so often someone will write me and be like, did you know that... You know, you released this episode on the same day that the album originally came out 30 years ago. And I'll be like, I actually didn't think about it. It just sort of happened. That happened here. And just a month after this episode came out, Muse released a remixed, remastered version of Origin of Symmetry, which is fantastic because I've never loved the mastering job on Origin of Symmetry. The early 2000s were a notorious time for hard rock albums kind of being squished and smashed and kind of mastered within an inch of their lives. And I think the remix generally sounds really good. So I actually did a short but more in-depth comparison over in the Strong Songs Patreon bonus feed a little while back, but just for posterity, I mean, check out the difference between Microcuts the original and Microcuts the remix. Here's the original from 2001. And here's the remixed version. Like, what? Listen to that harpsichord. Then Bellamy starts singing. It's probably the most dramatically different recording on the album, to be fair, but they're all really interesting and they're all pretty different sounding. It's a kind of amazing remix, even where I don't totally care for the change they made or I'm just more emotionally attached to the original. It's still super interesting to listen to. So yeah, check out this episode if you haven't yet and then go listen to the remixed version of the album because it's a trip and you can listen to both albums, like both versions of the album on streaming, which is actually very interesting because you can compare the two and just sort of listen for how the mixing process has maybe changed in the last 20 years, or at least Muse's preferences for mixing have changed. So yeah, great band, great songs, great fun making this episode. Next up, Carol King's You've Got a Friend! Just call out my name And you know wherever I am I'll come running Oh man, this song. This is such a good song. To see you again 
could listen to Carol King sing forever, and I could talk about Carol King songs forever too, as it turns out. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. It's such a great song. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. This is actually where I first learned about King's great friendship with James Taylor and Joni Mitchell, both of whom are featured on this recording. And along with King, they made up a vital part of the early 70s Laurel Canyon folk scene, which just sounds like it was quite a scene, quite a cool place to be. A lot of pretty amazing music happening. So as I discussed on the episode, the actual impetus for this episode was a cover version that I listened to while I was out on a walk just because a friend recommended the record to me. Um, It's a live version that was performed by Donny Hathaway, just a year after Tapestry, the Carole King album, came out. And there's this incredible moment where instead of singing the chorus, he has the audience sing the chorus for him. I love the bridge to this song. I always admire a good bridge because it's not easy to write a good bridge and Carole King wrote a killer bridge for this song. And I love the change that Hathaway makes in his cover where he puts the bridge right after the first chorus. He just gets to the bridge a little bit faster because it does take a while to get there on the original recording. And actually, he did this same arrangement with Roberta Flack in their studio album. I've subsequently bought all of these versions. I'm on vinyl and I listen to them a lot. And I love the way they get into that bridge after that first chorus when Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack do it together. You got a friend Ain't it good to know that you got a friend People can be so cold Man, it's just so good. What a great song. God, this is just one of the best songs ever. Tapestry is such an incredible album. I had a great time listening to it while I was working on this. I come back to it so often and just put it on. It's one of those albums that you can just put on anytime. Carol King, man, one of the greats. And take your soul if you let them. Oh, but don't you let them. You just call. Next up, Strong Covers, Volume 1. The 
most requested episode I've ever done, and also the most downloaded episode of Year 3. Strong Covers Volume 1 was an instructive and enjoyable change. I had a good time comparing and contrasting famous covers with their inspirations. Gave me a lot of insight into both the original artist and the cover artist. For example, what you're listening to, Aretha Franklin's cover of Otis Redding's Respect, that became the definitive version of that song. So it was really interesting to go back and compare it to the original because it's wildly different. All of the covers on the episode were fun to talk about, but I was especially glad to tackle Gary Jules and Michael Andrews' haunting cover of Tears for Fears' Mad World. All around me are familiar faces Worn out places Worn out faces Bright and I got so many emails about this episode, many with suggestions of covers that I could talk about on future editions of Strong Covers. Don't worry, I have a huge list of covers I want to talk about, a lot of stuff planned for the future, and also, don't worry, I knew at the time that I made this episode that I wasn't talking about Hendrix's cover of All Along the Watchtower. That was something I was aware of when I made the episode. A lot of you wrote in about that. It'll happen at some point. I know that that's a really iconic cover. Speaking of Mad World, though, one thing that a bunch of people pointed me to was this beautiful acoustic quarantine cover of the song that Tears for Fear singer Kurt Smith did along with his daughter Diva, and I don't know if it really counts as a cover since he's the original guy who sang it, but it sort of feels like a cover because it's pretty different than the original. It's beautiful and it really does owe something to that Jules Andrews cover, I think. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces. Threatened early for their daily races Going nowhere, going nowhere I'll link the video in the show notes in case you haven't seen it. It really is great. It's worth checking out. There's just something so cool about seeing a parent playing music together with their child. It's one of those profoundly lovely things. I'm definitely looking forward to talking about more strong covers in the future. No tomorrow, no tomorrow And I find it kind of funny, I find it kind of sad The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had That was the first time that I actually discovered the world of sound, you know. Before then, it was just whatever instruments were available. I never ever thought to really record just sound, just the world of sound. I was just blown away by sound that I'd never really noticed. Every sound of every day, of every moment of every day. I just never listened to it. Do you know what? I mean, it was there, but I just never really listened. And it was a massive epiphany for me, to the point where I couldn't unhear things anything and then everything became musical every time I sat on the train every time everywhere I went I could just hear music all the time it was really like a door had just been massively flung open 
Well, oh my gosh, this one was pretty cool. The great Imogen Heap listened to my episode from this same year about her song Hide and Seek. She liked it, and I asked if she'd want to come on the show and talk about music. She said yes, and you can go listen to that conversation right now. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff, but throughout the conversation I was struck by, for how extraordinary her music is, Imogen is actually just a person. She has the same creative struggles, the same kinds of mental blocks as the rest of us, and I found that inspiring in this specific way. She's accomplished so much. She's done so many amazing things, but she's done that just by writing what's in the headlights. She focuses on what's in front of her, and she's built this incredible musical legacy one step at a time. Mixing is a technical realization of an emotional thing, right? Like, a good mix, in my opinion, should be a song has now achieved the peak ability to transmit what the intended emotion is to the listener. Technically speaking, all you're doing is balancing and leveling and making it work on a bad stereo, but like, actually what you're doing is emotionally interpreting the presentation of this piece of music. You know, the real truth is, is that if you're turning, if you're the one that's saying go to the master or like the one that's like posting it online, like you mixed it, you're the mixer. So everybody's a mixer at this point in history. I think the biggest thing that for me personally has been such a lucky thing is that I got to see a lot of people whom I deeply, deeply respect break rules. Ah, Brian Bender, my old childhood friend, now one of the best mix engineers in the business, and with that beautiful speaking voice, too. This conversation was such a kick, if only for the surreality of the fact that the kid who introduced me to Akira and A Link to the Past would, almost 30 years later, be sharing all this incredible knowledge about production, mixing, and musical philosophy. I definitely plan on having Brian back on the show, since I think we have a whole lot more to talk about. Next up, Billy Joel's scenes from an Italian restaurant. Things are okay with me these days. Got a good job, I got a good office, I got a new wife, got a new life, and the family is fine. The main thing that this episode accomplished was getting me to really get familiar with Billy Joel's early albums, particularly his fruitful collaboration with producer Phil Ramone, whose first collaboration with Joel produced this song, as well as the incredible album that it's on, The Stranger. I got to play a lot of sax on this episode, even some clarinet, which is always a good time. But one cool thing actually involved listeners getting in touch after the fact. During that dramatic stop time section in the ballad of Brenda and Eddie, I theorized about how it must look on stage when Joel performs this live. The lights flashing in time with the rhythm section hits, the spotlight down on the piano as he goes into that dramatic left hand thing. I've never actually seen him live, but in my mind's eye, I can just see it. Brenda and Eddie were the popular steadies and the king and the queen of the farm. Riding around with the car top down and the radio on. After the episode went up, a bunch of people wrote in to tell me about times that they've seen Billy Joel live and to confirm that my mind's eye image of how that section works on stage was surprisingly close to how it actually works on stage. I always love when listeners have reason to write in like that, and it was really cool to read all these different first person accounts of seeing him live from various different decades in places all around the world. Was still going steady in the summer of 75 When they decided the marriage would be at the end of July Next up, Fingertips by They Might Be Giants Fingertips, fingertips, fingertips 
<laughs> I don't know what I was thinking trying to make this episode. I hear the wind blow. I hear the wind blow. It seems to say hello. Hello. I'm the one who loves you so. It took way too much work to get it across the finish line, but honestly, given how ridiculously ambitious this was, you know, for something to attempt for an episode of this show, I'm pretty happy with how it came together. Hey now everybody, now hey now everybody, hey now everybody now. I learned a lot of music while making this episode. That's probably not a surprise. It turns out, even if a song is five seconds long, there's still a lot of work involved in figuring out the harmony, the arrangement, the keyboard and guitar tones, and all of that. And then you do that over and over and over again for 21 different songs. So I probably should have known in advance that this would be a lot of work. I knew fingertips super well going into making this episode, but I definitely gained a new appreciation for it as I took the whole thing apart. I found a new friend underneath my pillow. When all was said and done, my favorite fingertip was actually one that comes a little later on in the sequence, the song Something Grabbed a Hold of My Hand. The only fingertip to feature vocalist Amy Allison, this one is just so beguiling to me. The way it builds up this lovely harmonic staircase and then grandly walks down it and then ends. It's all potential in this way that I really love, and I suppose you could say that about every single fingertip in fingertips, but this one in particular, it's like this extremely short film where a beautifully dressed couple walks in the door, descends a grand wraparound staircase, moves up to the center of the frame, they smile at the camera as if to speak, and then credits. Next up, a whole bunch of Q&A episodes! Throughout the year, I ran a bunch of Q&A episodes, and I answered dozens of listener questions. I love making these mailbag episodes. They're super fun, both because they let me talk about a wide range of musical artists and styles, but also because they introduce me to stuff I've never heard before. I've actually found out about a lot of great music from all of you. While we're talking about listener contributions, this is as good a place as any to mention that in year three, I also launched a Discord server for Strong Songs, and it's been really cool. A whole bunch of people have joined up. There's always a nice little back and forth going on there, and a lot of really great music recommending going on there as well. And I found out about a ton of great music this year, thanks to all of you, both on the Discord server and writing in with your questions for the show. Sometimes those mailbag episodes don't just introduce me to new music, they teach me something new about a song that I already thought that I knew. That definitely happened with a fairly recent Q&A episode. I answered a question about Steve Gregory's sax solo on Wham's Careless Whisper. Like a lot of people, I've long assumed this was an alto saxophone. Tamborilli, it sounds more like a smaller, higher alto than a tenor, though maybe an unusually robust alto. But in answering a straightforward question about why that sax riff has proved to be so enduring, I learned that in fact, Steve Gregory was playing a tenor sax that was later pitch-shifted up a semitone in order to get it into the key of the song. So it was originally recorded in D flat minor, which is a half step lower 
than the actual key of the song. That sounds like this on tenor sax. So then if you pitch shift it up a step into D minor, it sounds just a little bit different. It was a rabbit hole that I was not expecting to fall into during a mailbag episode, but that's the thing about rabbit holes, you never see them coming. So oh man, it's time for September by Earth, Wind, and Fire! a surprise that this one was a hit, but it definitely was one of the most popular episodes of the year, released on the actual date in the song, the 21st of September, when it felt like everyone really wanted to talk about this song even more than usual. I definitely have to mention comedian Demi Adejibe's incredible final dance video. He always makes dance videos about this song, and he made his last one, or at least he claims it's his last one this year, and it was a real, like, showstopper. Just extremely fun. I think that supercharged the day and got everybody talking about the song, and I was already talking about the song, so there was just a lot of energy, really positive energy around this song all day, and it was so cool to get to be a little part of that, to have released this episode, and then have everybody get to go listen to it. I was extra proud of the recreations that I made of this song for this episode. I spent a whole lot of time really trying to nail the vibe, trying to get them all in one take, learn all those guitar parts and piano parts, and just get the sound and the performance of all these different parts together. And as a result, I was able to nail what I think is, and will probably always be, the greatest seamless transition from one of my recreations back to the original recording that I've ever pulled off. So, one more time for posterity, please enjoy that transition. This song rules. Next up, Janet Jackson's Love Will Never Do Without You. What a time machine this was, traveling back to the time when Janet Jackson's music dominated a surprising amount of the musical soundscape of my childhood, and really getting inside that sound that she made along with producers Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, with their Lindrums, their Oberheims, and their SP-1200s. The sounds pioneered on Rhythm Nation and its predecessor Control defined the radio hits of the late 80s and 90s, and still ring out in the musical memories of an entire generation. Among other things, I got a lot of admittedly self-indulgent joy out of finally giving this song the outro vamp I always wanted it to have, extending the brief, beautiful post-chorus into a much longer, more extended homecoming. Ooh, 
Once I'd taken that step, it felt like the next logical step was to add something of my own, so of course, I had to give it a saxophone solo. It was a wonderful journey back in time and a rediscovery of some classic sounds that still sound great today. You have to figure out where their mind is at and how to get it back on track so that they believe they can do the show, so they're excited to do the show. I try to remind them Remember how much you wanted to do this when you were younger. Remember when you dreamed of being on stage, let's say in the UK. Like remember when you thought, oh my God, if I could get to this stadium, I will have made it. Because it's easy to forget sometimes when you're exhausted and tired, you forget that, oh yeah, this was my dream to do it. Because so much is going on around you. So that's part of the lesson too, just finding that joy rekindling that original flame that was so exciting to them. And once they can do that, once you can help them do that, boom, it's like all of a sudden they're on the road, they're on the path. My interview with Eric Vitro, vocal coach to the stars, was an unexpected addition to the show's schedule, and man, it was a really cool chat. I loved hearing about his job. It's so interesting and weird. He works with all kinds of megastar vocalists, even as they travel the world on separate tours. I also just think he had a lot of good, fundamental advice for how to maintain a healthy voice. I can definitely see why he's as in demand as he is. If I were Ariana Grande, I'd probably hire him too. Last but not least, stop making sense by talking heads. This one aired just a couple of weeks ago, so you don't really need a recap from me. You probably already listened to it. But I really enjoyed making this, and I enjoyed making something different. In this case, I was tackling Jonathan Demme's full concert film instead of focusing on a single song. I guess I I tackled the first hour of the film anyways, which feels like a self-contained thing to me, the first two acts, if you want to think of it that way. It required a lot of editing. I had to cut a lot of things that I would have otherwise talked about, and I still kind of had to rush to fit in half of what I wanted to say. But I actually really like just focusing on one or two cool things per song. This episode was structured around the five musicians who joined the core band for this film. Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt on vocals, Steve Scales on percussion, Alex Weir on vocals and guitar, and Bernie Worrell on keyboard. They were all great, but I came away particularly impressed with Bernie Worrell's keyboard playing. He contributed so much to Stop Making Sense. He really elevates the whole thing. He brings those P-Funk sensibilities, these kind of weirdo keyboard solos, but he also just brought some really funky rhythm playing, like everything that he plays on Burning Down the House. Sugar, 
It all comes to a head in Once in a Lifetime, probably the most electrifying single live performance I've ever seen, where by the end of the song, the band's collective energy has like lifted them and the crowd out of the theater and into the heavens. It was a perfect way to close out year three. And hey, if you listen to this episode and you didn't go and watch the movie, now is your chance. Why are you still here? Go and watch it. That'll do it for Strong Songs Year 3. That's the end of the year, and it's kind of wild that I've been making this show for three whole years. Thanks so much to all of you for listening along, especially if you're one of those rare few who's been there from the start. Some other folks I want to thank really quick. Thanks to Emily Williams and Amanda Ferlotti both for feedback and advice throughout the year. Thanks to Corinne McSherry and Catherine Trendacosta at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They were fantastically helpful to me. That's a great organization. Thanks to Nevada Jones, my voice teacher, for helping me make some great headway on my voice this year. Made it a lot easier to record this show since it takes a lot of recording to make strong songs. And of course, thanks to the many musicians, engineers, and producers who've written in over the year to share insights, recording tips, and thoughts on the music that I've been talking about. Last but not least, thanks so much to all of you who support Strong Songs on Patreon, whether you pledge a little bit or a lot, whether you signed up for just a couple months or you've been there from the start. It gives me this stable income that lets me commit to making this show consistently, and that makes a huge difference. I've already got a bunch of stuff planned for year four. I'll be adding more merch to the merch store, having got a bunch of exciting guests, and of course, talking about a whole bunch more music. For now, though, I'm going to be taking a break for the month of December, so let's let this year's new outro soloists take us home, starting with Carlosini on the Barry Sax. And Jeff Bean on guitar. Gallagher's on tenor sax. And remember... This isn't a podcast about movies. This isn't a podcast about books. This isn't about TikTok trends or influencer friends or true stories of history's greatest crooks. This is a podcast about the notes in the air and the notes on the page. The sounds and the songs we all leave on the stage. This is Strong Songs, a podcast about music. Thanks for listening. See you next year.